Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. This is a big one. Really happy to get this guest. Uh, took a little bit of coordinating, but I'm glad she can make the time in what's going to be a busy season coming up. So this week's guest has won over 10 FIV medals since 2017. She won the Commonwealth Games for Canada, and she's a world champion. So please welcome to the show, Melissa Himana Paredes. Melissa, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. You know, I feel like I skipped over a lot of stuff in your intro, but it, it's for the fans, really, to get to the important stuff where I, I think you and I first met when I was working the OVA Beach Tour. You won Adult Provincials like three years in a row. You won the first Youth Open. There's just a bunch of stuff I skipped over. but Those were really the golden days. I kind of wanted to start there. Is that really what happened uh, to make you fall in love with volleyball? Because you were one of those kids who would play like two days a week on the OVA Beach Tour. Uh, your dad had what was a really strong beach club where it felt like every year... Uh, the women's team went on to represent Canada came out of like a elite beach where you were training. So um, how, how young do you remember starting beach volleyball and was your dad kind of the biggest influence? Oh my gosh, I'm getting so nostalgic. Just even <laughs> thinking about that elite beach. I remember that. Um, yeah, I'd say that my love for the game started really young and my dad was a big influence. Of course, um, growing up, even just in diapers and being a toddler on the beach, um, just being surrounded by this, the environment and the sport because of my dad and watching his journey on the FIV World Tour and on the way to their Olympics with Mark Lee and John Childs was obviously a huge inspiration for me. And it was just kind of my norm was just being around the beach volleyball world and the volleyball community in general um, in, in Canada. And that's really when it, when it hit me was just – the community that we have and it just felt very homey to me um growing up at Ashbridge's Bay and playing in all these OVA tournaments and at the Elite Beach Club and just being part of um a really tight-knit and lovable community uh it was really hard for me to look back and 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 not continue pursuing my dream in Beach Lago. Nice and our show loves a good name drop so you would have played most of your career I think I would have remembered with Victoria Altamar but your, your beach club had a lot of other athletes that I feel deserve a bit of a shout out so just want to mention who you kind of grew up playing with and against. Oh my god yeah Victoria was awesome um, my very first beach partner actually was Yulia um, and then I remember we played against like Jordan Maloney and Ali Goff when we were first young um, and then Kaylee Whitaker and um, Julie Gordon actually was there. And then on the men's side, we had like Sam Schachter and Grant or Gorman and Aaron Nussbaum. Like we just had everybody. Am I missing? We had, I, who else did we have? I feel like I'm missing so many people. I feel like at the time it was like the beach club because even guys who kind of went on to play indoor at university and then come back to the beach like Alex Poldma, Nick LeBlanc, Alex O'Neill. <laughs> like there was so many good players. Yeah. Um, yeah. the Haggerty sisters on the women's side were very good. Like, yeah, there was just so many, yeah. I think, uh, younger ones that looked up to you, like Julie Longman were them. Tia Merrick was in the club at one point. Like, yeah. Oh my God. Yes. My brother was there too. Like it really was just so fun, honestly. And I think that's really why I started it and kept with the sport because, you know, twice a week we would have these practices and it was just so much fun to be there with, with this group of people. Like it was really a hangout and it was a fun hangout. Um, it was like a team. I think in beach volleyball, it's hard because it's just two of you out there rather than indoor volleyball and you have a team of like 12. And so being a part of a, this club made you feel like you had a team of 12 and it was always just so much fun. And I always looked forward to going to those practices. Um, 
oh gosh, just the best memories. <laughs> and what do you remember about being around Mark and John? Because I think to a lot of people, like for me, they were these larger than life characters who went to the Olympics and they were medalists where they were probably in your peer group where you were around them so much that you probably weren't starstruck by them, right? So what do you remember, even though you were quite young, about being around them as Canada's top team for what felt like forever? Yeah, honestly, I think you're, you're right. I think it was very normalized in my life kind of just being around a couple olympians and just being a part of somewhat a part of this olympic journey i think it just became my norm and i think i took it for granted um because i didn't really know anything different and um it didn't really hit me until i was older and people would be kind of starstruck with who they are and what what they've done not that i um am putting their accomplishments down at all it was just you know, that's just my dad. And, and yeah, that's, that's Mark and that's John. And, um, but you know, we're kind of part of a family and, and it, it was always just very natural to me. Um, and it was a really, really lovely childhood growing up. I feel very lucky. Um, and I probably had big crushes on them when I was like seven years old. But, um, <laughs> then John ended up becoming my coach later on in my career. And so everything came full circle and I'm really grateful for those relationships and, and uh, connections that I built. Yeah. I'd like to build on that in the community. Cause one thing that stands out in my mind is uh, your brother who's an amazing, genuine guy. I love the guy. He used to come and hang out in the beach tent with the beach crew. And we'd be like, Hey man, like what's up? Aren't you done for the day? And he goes, Oh yeah, we're heading home soon. But my dad has to say goodbye to like the entire beach before we can go. So uh, just kind of spotlight your family where not only your father, but your mom and your whole family would come out to these events. And it was just kind of like a family outing to come support you and Felipe. That's so funny. Yeah. It took like an hour and a half to leave the beach because my dad, <laughs> had to say bye to every single, every time you take five steps, someone would come up and say hello or bye to him. And, and then it just became like when we were younger, we got really annoyed with it, but then it just became just a part of the culture. Like it is really much like a family. Like when you are saying bye, you want to go hug so many different people because you love each other so much. And, um, there, there really isn't anything like the community that we have. Not that I've found yet, to be honest. I think it's, there's something really beautiful and vulnerable about that community because at least back then when we were all younger and, and we were still competing, but it was honestly very much like a, a social gathering and then playing volleyball as well. And, and, um, it's probably the best environment that I could have grown up in. And I hope that it's still around for, for the youth these days because, um, it really made me fall in love with the sport. Now, how did you find the balance? Because you just touched on there that it was competitive, but it was a great community. So the music's playing, the the boys' courts are usually close to the girls' courts. So like, there's the whole social thing going on. You're watching your friends play. Um, how did you kind of know to take care of business and still perform when your game was being on, but when the time was there, you could hang out in the shade and be talking to anybody who was around? Yeah, I mean... I think it took me a while to find that balance in general. Like, I don't even think I found it until a couple of years ago, but... Um, <laughs> Um, back then it was, I guess, just that killer instinct inside that when the whistle blows, it's a game now. And then as soon as the whistle, like the, the final whistle blows, then, you know, you can go and, and socialize again. Um, but it was just kind of the people that were part of that community were all very competitive. And so, um, I think there was a very good balance amongst all of us, um, to, understand when our social responsibilities were over and, and when we could start up again, like when the line of on court, off court, um, was drawn. And so 
I think we all did a good job of that. And we were all very competitive. And not only that, it also translated into indoor volleyball as well. So we would have kind of like rivalries from indoor clubs that would kind of translate onto the beach. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, it still didn't really like, uh, the competition never really took over our friendships and the connections that we made because we, we knew when to drop it, but it was just so much fun. So with you kind of climbing the ladder and getting a chance to represent Canada at a youth world's, was that also a little bit normalized because people in the beach club had already gone on to do it? Like, it didn't feel like you and V were like the first one from our community to go, or even like Viv Chan got to go represent Canada mm. and she was training. Uh, Kaylee Whitaker went on. Like, there was just a bunch and bunch of people that it wasn't unusual for an Ashbridge as a Bay athlete to be on the road representing Canada. So what did you remember from your first experience? And was it overwhelming or was it kind of this the next natural step for you? Interesting that you say that. I think... Um so my first world championship with Victoria was in Turkey. And, um, I think going into that literally had zero expectations, um, did not know what to expect at all. And we finished dead last in the tournament. We didn't make it out of our pool. And I think myself personally went into that tournament, you know, being, you know, a Ontario champion. And I think we won nationals that year as well. And so we kind of knew that we were good in Canada but we didn't really know how that compared globally. And that was like, I think a big eye opener and a huge shot to the ego as well. Um, and I think it really kind of like put me in my place. Um, and it's funny because a lot of those same people that I played against at the world championships are still on tour that I play against now. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see how we've all evolved. But, um, I think that whole experience was, so formative for me. Um, and even though, you know, we would go back to Canada and it would just be a huge accomplishment that we went to the world championships. I think we wanted more than that. And I think that's when it kind of started. Um, and, and shortly after, I think our boys, Sam and Grant, sorry, Sam and Garrett were the first ones to get a medal, um, internationally. And that really sparked, I think a lot of um, inspiration and motivation in, in the youth community in beach volleyball in Canada, for sure. And then I feel like it, since then, it's just, we've accomplished so much. Yeah. I remember that being a special moment where they, they came home and we had that big banquet almost for them. And it was, it was this big deal because I think Garrett and Nick had taken a fourth, maybe the year before the two years before. And I was like, Oh, we're, we're, we're close, but yeah, to win a world championship. I remember being like a big thing for the community and everybody appreciated it. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, it was pretty, it was pretty incredible, uh, because again, we like, we'd come from like a grassroots community and going in, um, with kind of a system that wasn't very established and then seeing how other countries had established their own programs and what they do to develop their athletes and how we were kind of so different and kind of very far behind in a lot of ways. Um, and then to see us kind of like scratch our way up and, and still get a medal and like slowly start to like regain structure in our national team and really like put in place a solid foundation for um, developing beach volleyball athletes to like really produce performance internationally. Going back to that time, uh, you kind of had a unique experience where you played a youth worlds, but you also got to play in an open because Canada hosted Quebec. Do you remember mm -hmm. how old you are? I was trying to figure that. Were you around 17 or 18? Like you were quite young when you got to play and you and V were in the main draw, right? Yeah, we had to go through a country quota. I think I was, I, 
must have been 17. Yeah, 17 or 18. You're right. Um, I think I was just actually right out of high school. It was so awesome, and I was so starstruck. Um, <laughs> I remember I was sitting in line at the buffet at the hotel, and I was sitting behind Marie Antonelli, and for some reason I was just like, like getting really red in the face and like blushing so much as being behind her. And I was just completely starstruck. Anyways, um, we had to crawl our way up through the country quota. Uh, and then we had to play qualification and then we got into the main draw. We did end up going one, two barbecue, but it was like the best experience, um, of my life at that time. It was so cool. So what helped with uh, going from Starstruck to appear? And we've asked a few people, like Ben Saxon mentioned, like the first time he played against Phil Dalhauser, it was like a memory for him and it kind of stood out in his mind. So what helped you going from like being a 17-year-old on tour and this is awesome, I can't wait to, I, to see all these people to not only competing but beating these athletes? Yeah, I mean, that's been a huge journey and a huge roller coaster as well. Like, um there was a time when I, it was surreal for me to be playing against these, these competitors. Like I remember when I first started really on tour with Taylor, um, and we were playing against, you know, Laura Ludwig and Carrie Walsh and, um, Agatha and Talita and Larissa, just like all these names that I'd grown up watching and, and listening to and, and just, um, really admiring to now facing them across the net it was really hard to kind of um really kind of compartmentalize on court off court again like once the whistle blows and I'm on the court it doesn't matter who they are they're not my idols anymore I respect them always and forever but I can't be starstruck and it took me a long time um to to learn that lesson and um I think it wasn't really until I partnered up with Sarah um, that it really computed. Um, but honestly, like even now, I'll still get a little like starstruck when I see like, oh my God, that's Phil. And, you know, like, oh my God, like there's Carrie. Like, you know, uh, oh my God, it's Laura. But like they're now friends um, as well as competitors. Um, but it's still like, I'll, I don't think I'll ever lose that part of me, that like young girl who grew up in the sport. And um, even though I wasn't necessarily starstruck by Marquise and John Child, um, I still appreciate and like love and respect how far the sport has come and like who those names are that have really helped the sport grow. And, and I won't really ever forget that. Nice. Nice. So, was there a progression for you? We always like to ask people, what's interesting about our sport is just a different mentality of, of being through a qualifier and then the different attitude of being in a main draw and obviously a, a different attitude you have now with being a metal threat. But for somebody who had to go through like a country quota, how have you progressed and matured in our sport that can be pretty unforgiving, right? You can, you can fly all the way across the world and if you lose one match in the qualifier, you're done, right? So how did you find that you kind of dealt and managed with that stress when you were progressing through the ranks? Yeah, that is, like you said, it, it's one of the gnarly things about our sport and it's really unforgiving and um, it's it's really hard to kind of feel the love for the sport when you're not doing well. Like the sport is great when you're doing well um, and it treats you well when you're <laughs> doing well, but um, 
fortunately there, there haven't been very many times for myself that, um, we didn't qualify being in, in the qualification. Um, like the very first time I played a qualification in Quebec, uh, Victoria and I qualified and it was grueling and it was amazing. And it was just pure joy and elation after. And, um, I remember the time that we didn't qualify. I was with Taylor. We were in long beach. Um, and it was so disheartening. Um, and I think especially for, for us Canadians there, I think it, there's more on the line. Um, because a lot of us do this out of pocket. We do this, you know, because we got into the sport. Uh, we love this sport. We, we kind of want to make a name for ourselves. And so we really invest in ourselves. And so sometimes you do have to weigh the pros and cons and, and that can be both a good and bad motivator. Like when you're on the court in the qualification and you're like, Oh my gosh, if I don't win this game, I'm not going to have a hotel room for tonight. I, I'm going to have to fly back right away. Like what are all these expenses? I just, I just, um, used and, and like that stuff can either help you or deter you. And I think it just depends on what kind of player you are. You can also use it as a motivator and be like, no, like this next point I'm going to get because, um, I want a hotel room for tonight. Like it's just kind of how you approach it. And I think it's all very individual, but, over the years, it's been a really interesting transition from, okay, I get a hotel room for tonight to I'm going to get that gold medal on Sunday. Like it's, it's pretty crazy to kind of reflect back on that and see how far I've come. Um, because there was a time when we would get off a plane and we wouldn't think that we would win a tournament. And now that's not the case anymore. Yeah. And how did you come across that? Because I think confidence is a very interesting thing, especially in our sport where some people rely on getting the results before they feel confident, but I don't think it works that way. I think you need to be confident to come through in those tough moments. So with you, who people see as this genuinely happy person who's always up and in a good mood, what have you done to maybe reflect or be in, in some tough mental moments? Like, do you take a journal or how do you kind of keep climbing? Because um, like I said, our sport's pretty unforgiving and, and results it happens fast with the amount of tournaments on tour right where like you said when you're doing well the tour is great when you're not doing well it can be pretty unforgiving yeah i think you're right i think um you you said it well there's this quote that's like i'll see it when i believe it and a lot of people say i'll believe it when i see it but i think it's the opposite in the sport like you do have to really kind of build your own confidence before um it kind of shows through results. And I think if you wait until results, you're waiting for nothing. You're waiting for too long. Um, you really have to trust the process and really make little goals along the way. Um, because no matter what, if you play your best game, you might still get beat and it won't show up in a result that you have absolutely played your best and there's nothing better than you can do. And that's all you can ask for as an athlete. So that's what I always come back to every day and every practice. What can I get better at? What can I perfect? Like, what can I keep improving on? Um, because I mean, I personally don't think there's, there's a limit to what we can improve on. Even now there's still so much that I need to do, but, um, I'm not waiting for a result or a medal to feel accomplished or fulfilled. Um, if I can continue to get better and improve, then I know I'm on, I'm on the right track. And I've kind of dabbled in 
journaling from from time to time and it all it hasn't always stuck with me unfortunately because I really wanted to make it stick but um I really just try and focus on being present in the moment um I think it's really easy to get carried away and um ways that I do that is honestly I just sometimes when I'm in a big stadium I'll just look into the crowd and that really grounds me and sometimes I get really scared to do that but I remember I did that before the world championships and it completely grounded me and made me focus and realize where I am in that moment and that there's nowhere else I'd rather be. And that really helps me, um, kind of zero in on what I'm there to do and what my priorities are. And yes, of course, the ultimate goal is, is to win, but I think there's more to that path than the result. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's a great answer. I was hoping you could give an example of what maybe a process item looks like, because I think that's a word that's been glorified a little bit in sports yeah. with like the Philadelphia 76ers and trust the process and everything. So do you go to practice with a plan that you're going to work on vision or you're going to challenge more balls when you're digging? Like what's something that a youth athlete could use as like a tangible example that they could hopefully apply after hearing this? Yeah. I mean, we show up to every practice, but usually our coach will kind of um, give us an idea of what we're going to be working on. And either individually or, or together as a team, we'll come up with like one or two goals, nothing more than that, because anything more than that, I think is too overwhelming. And we get really specific and you're already thinking about too much that you really want to keep it simple. And so if I'm thinking about uh, passing or setting, like let's just say setting, um, I, the, the kind of the two key takeaways that will help me throughout the process to kind of get to the end result that I want will be, um, kind of my, my penetration to the ball. So like my, um, starting point from service receive and like gauging where the pass might be so that I don't overrun it. Um, and so that's like one thing, um, opening up to the ball in the right way, which includes a lot of footwork. And then also using a lot of my legs and not just my arms. I know when I get really tired or I'm not present in the moment and I'm not focused on the process, I'll just use my arms and I'll get really lazy. And that's when I'll start maybe lifting the ball for too long, carrying it, getting something doubles. So, um, if I can focus on those two things, I will usually always get the result that I want. Um, it's the same thing with passing. If I am not active with my feet as soon as the ball is contacted. And if I bring my if I lock my, my hands together too early and we, what we call handcuffs, if I have handcuffs on, um, too early, then I'm not going to get the result that I want. So those are kind of two things, like two little goals in those, each of those skills that I will, um, help me throughout the process. And if I can just do that and like take those things off, then the result will ultimately be what I want. Nice. And are you looping in your coach so they can provide feedback as well? Or are you really the one taking the lead on how that feels and performs as you're going through practice? No, I mean, I heavily rely on this. This has been a three year, four year process with my coach, Scott, and I heavily relied on him for feedback. Um, and now it took a couple of years, but now I, I'm really in tune with um, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing and, and what it's producing. So now I have a better gauge of that, but I also, he has eyes on me all the time at practice and we'll constantly go back and forth between this is what, um, this is what the results was. And this is what I think happened. And we'll kind of go back and be like, yeah, exactly. This is what I saw. This is what I need to fix. And so, um, it's been 
a process for sure. And it hasn't been easy. It's been extremely frustrating. And I actually am not a very technically sound player. And so it's, there have been a lot of changes that I've had to kind of really, um, like dig deep on and, and be open to changing. Um, and it's because of him. And, and so it's very much a team, um, coach athlete relationship that's kind of helped this, this process. I couldn't do it alone. Absolutely not. Nice. And how have you found the balance between that? Because I, to circle back to your earlier answer about youth worlds and Canada, not having a system compared to other countries, like just to use an example, like it seems like the Germans are very technical where maybe as Canadians, we don't grow up with the same coaching or playing style. So how are you competing at such a high level with maybe less technical skills? Is it just the mental game? Is it maybe we're not playing that much of a technical skill that we're, we're able to kind of flow a little bit and be unique in some skills? Like how have you found the balance where you're not necessarily trying to catch up with all the reps that other countries might have, but you've found your own way to do it? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think growing up, I was definitely more of a flow player. Um, I was more of an instinctual player as well. Like I wasn't really ever, it wasn't ever really drilled in me um, to be super technically sound. Um, And then Later in my development, when I started playing under Leonard, when he was the, the head coach, Leonard Krapp, um, and he brought kind of his German influence and, and their strategies and techniques in, um, they did instill a lot more technical work behind every single skill. And that was something that I did struggle with because it wasn't what I was used to. Um, but I did have a, a few years of that, um, and that really helped my development, I think, immensely. Um, and then... There's just been so many different um, changes throughout the the beach volleyball national team program, and um, now we have the freedom um, being on the senior team to kind of train anywhere. And, and where we decided to train was in California with our with our coach Scott, and he's been also incredible. He's also he's like such a good balance of both the technical and kind of the flow instinct um, style. Um, he was kind of born and raised in the California game out here. And so he's got a bit of both and he caters to kind of both. And I think what, what he does really well and, and what Sarah and I both do and try and bring and embrace is not to completely change the player. Like I will always kind of be that slow player. I, you know, they say that I have like a high volleyball IQ and sometimes I'll trust my instinct on defense and sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm not, but they don't really take that away from me and vice versa. You know, Sarah's coming from, an indoor game and she brings a lot to the beach game with that. And like, we might kind of tune up some things here and there, but for the most part, we allow each other to just kind of be who they are innately. Um, but just like kind of clean up some technical pieces here and there. Very cool. I, I was hoping you could share how you guys decide on goal setting because there, there are teams out there that if they take a ninth, they'd be happy with that result. But I get the sense that you and Sarah wouldn't be as happy with a ninth. So at what point in your career did you start kind of wanting more where maybe it's get in the top 10, maybe it's quarterfinals, or were you always trying to like gun for a medal and, and win the tournament when you arrived? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that you say that. Cause I remember our first season together with Sarah, we, um, we had the goal. We sat down at the beginning of the year and we had the goal to be ranked in the top 10 by the end of the year, which we thought was like a pretty realistic goal for us. Um, and we ended up finishing the season ranked number two. So we far exceeded our own expectations. And that kind of just threw out all of our preconceived notions and goal setting standards out the window because we were like, no, we were way off. But 
Um, I think when we first started, we were a little bit erring on the cautious side just to kind of see what was going to happen. And then once we started to play, um, we had, you know, we kind of surprised ourselves um, in a way um, and kind of had to readjust our goals based on that. And I think every season since then has been different and beautiful in its own way, but also very challenging in their own way. And our goals have either been severely met or not at all. And so we kind of do like, um, a, a couple steps when we, when we goal set, we don't just rely and focus on, we want these many, um, results, these many medals. We want this amount of points, whatever. We also set goals for ourselves, um, in terms of skill and what kind of player we want to be and, um, what kind of, I guess, improvements we want to see on the court. So I remember, I think, oh, I wish I had it now in front of me. Um, my first year, I think one of my goals was to be like solely a hand setter, which I'd never really done before. I was always kind of cautious about hand setting all the time because I was afraid of giving up an error, uh, giving up a point, being called on hands, whatever. So I would like kind of dabble between bumps and hand setting. And when I started with Sarah, that was one of my main goals for that season was to be predominantly a hand setter. And to be honest, I like got served every single ball that season. So I didn't really hand set that much at all or just set in general, but that was something that I worked on day in and day out. That was one of my goals for the season. And, um, slowly I became a lot more comfortable with it. And I think the next season or the season after that, I won best set of the year, which again, it's not like a goal. It wasn't a goal of mine, but it was just like validation to, to, to show that what I had been doing and the work that I've been putting in in the past paid off. And so um, that's I think that award was actually really, really special for me because um, I did put a lot of work into it. But again, sorry, back to goal setting. Like it doesn't just go, it, it goes beyond the results. It, it's also, we focus a lot on what kind of um, athlete we want to be, what kind of skills we want to work on um, and how we want to feel at the end of the season. Nice. Yeah, I'm learning a lot about goal setting just by doing this. We had Garrett May on the show, and I know you you grew up with John May, kind of being an influence, and he's so funny. Where if John's coaching you and you say, "Oh, I wanna, I wanna be a top five of this tournament," he's like, "What? You wanna get to quarters and lose? Like that would be your goal? You'd be happy with that?" So it's just funny to hear how many different ways you can go about goal setting. Where you're right, it's not all outcome based. You could pick a skill or you could do something different. Where um, with your team, if you don't win a tournament, that's not necessarily deemed as a failure, even though you're capable of doing it. Like you guys find a way to maybe regroup or get grounded by something else. Right. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's really hard for us because we are both very competitive people and we do really like to win. Like it is a really great feeling to finish the end of a week with a win. Um, it's pretty special, but we do always understand that the game that we play is, is it can be very unpredictable and, there are a lot of great teams out there. Like anyone can win at any given day. And it's really rare to see kind of the same team in the final four week in and week out. And so, you know, that at any point, um, a team can just come out and beat you. Even if you play your absolute best game, they might have a better game than you. And that's something that you have to come to terms with. So you can't just rely on the result on feeling fulfilled or feeling like you did something right because you could have absolutely done everything right and had your best game ever and still lose. But that doesn't mean that, um, what you did was a failure. If anything, it was like a beautiful learning moment. 
Yeah, that segues well into our next question. We wanted to talk about World Championships, and what I find unique about Worlds is there, there's players on the circuit who will say it's actually more competitive than the Olympics, right? Because there's less country quota where you could have four uh, four teams from the same country. Like there, there's not as it's a bigger pool than the Olympics, so technically it could be more competitive than the Olympics. And some of the spotlight is is just as big with it, the focus being on our sport. So when you're walking into that environment, like you mentioned, it's really hard to repeat and be a top four team on on tour every event. What's kind of the mindset at Worlds? Does it feel different uh, for you going into that event? Oh my gosh, yes. The World Championships were just a completely different animal. Um, I mean, from the layout alone, um, it's spanning a week and a half, kind of mimicking what the Olympics uh, would feel like. It was it was pretty intense. Like It was pretty heated environment and just a great time, but also it was really hard to kind of stay focused the whole time because we would go from having two to three games in a day to just like one game maybe every other day or something and so it really made us kind of hone in on our skills and like really focus and break down each single game like normally you would have like maybe an hour to prepare for the game or two hours to prepare for the game here you had like a day and a bit to like really perfect this game so you would go in just like completely focused and zeroed in um it was a pretty crazy experience and you like literally the game or the tournament went by game by game like you literally like put everything into this one game and you didn't even think about the game that you had after that like we literally took every game by itself on its own and put everything we had into each of those games and how did you and and sarah and your coaching staff manage that because you're right like you can start to overthink it or you just had more time to plan than maybe a, a traditional tournament on tour. So how did you not become overwhelmed or start to kind of overanalyze every little detail? Yeah, I think it is really easy to do that. Um, I think, I don't know. That's a great question. I, we, we had a, we somehow managed it where we didn't get overwhelmed um, throughout the process because there is a lot of anticipation for each game and yeah, you're kind of like studying that team and you're preparing for them, um, as best as you can. And then as soon as the game's over, you're on to the next one. So, um, I mean, we all have our own process and, and Sarah is very, um, diligent with, with, and she's very analytic with, with the amount of like video that she watches and stuff. And, and I absolutely will as well. But once I start to feel, like I've seen enough. I'm not getting anything else from the video. I'm just kind of like going through the motions with our prep. Um, that's when I'll stop and I will like remove myself from, um, that like volleyball world essentially. And just kind of either put on a nice playlist that I really like or a podcast or read a book or go for a walk, hang out with my friends. My family was there. So I'd like go see them or whatever. Just kind of like take yourself out of it because it can get so overwhelming um, if you just allow yourself to get so immersed in it. So as you're progressing through the draw, did the outcome ever kind of creep into your mind or because like you mentioned, like every match was so you were so prepared and, and there was so much attention to it that it was just, let's focus on the next one. Or did it ever reach a point where you're like, man, I'm going to, I'm about to win worlds. It did for myself. It did later on in the tournament, but um, once when we started pool play, like every game was a grind. Like there were quite a few games leading into our playoffs that we shouldn't have 
were, we almost lost. Like we honestly had no right to win some of those <laughs> games because we were down game point. Like they would be crazy, crazy third set matches against some really strong teams that we honestly probably should have lost. And we just fought tooth and nail for every single point. And I think what really brought us together was how close these games were, how many times our backs were up against the wall and how many times we prevailed. Like that really showed our resilience. And so once we started to really kind of gain confidence throughout the tournament, because it was a bit of a shaky start, like our whole, I'd say our whole world championship experience was a serious grind. Like every game we had to execute, like there was no easy game. Um, And then once playoffs started and we were really in the mixer and like playing on stadium court and just feeling those vibes. That's when I think it started to hit us and it became a reality. And, um, we would say to each other, you know, we had this opportunity to become world champions and we would kind of look at each other and we would like smile a little bit. And then once we were in the final four, we would verbalize it and it really hit us that we could become world championships. I remember the morning of our finals, um, Sarah looked at me and we were just about to leave our hotel room, um, to go warm up for the game. And she said, the next time we come back into this room, we're going to be world champions. And she was right. <laughs> wow. That's, that's a great story. Thank you for that. So when you guys accomplished this, is it as daunting as it seems to everybody else where back home we're celebrating, you guys are on TSN, like it's a big sports news. It's a huge accomplishment. Like how did it feel in house uh, for you guys? Like did, did you, a lot of people from Canada reach out? Were they getting in touch with you on social? Like, did it feel like uh, as big to you as maybe it did for us back home when we're just seeing it shared on Instagram on everybody's page and everybody's just so happy for you guys? Oh my gosh. It was incredible. It was such a wave of emotion and, we seriously felt the love from Canada, um, overseas. It, we, like everything we opened, we were getting just a flood of messages and just so much love from everywhere. Um, it was, it's, it's a really hard feeling to describe, honestly. And that's really cliche, but it was just as an athlete, when you kind of accomplish one of the ultimate goals and, and, um, kind of create a legacy for yourself, like what we did, it's, it's so surreal. Like we will forever be a world champion. And that is something that I still have a hard time wrapping my mind around to this day. But, you know, we quickly had to forget about it, which was really unfortunate because within like 24 hours, we were on a plane heading towards the next tournament and we really had to kind of refocus and forget about that. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. And I, honestly feel like Stad stole our thunder because <laughs> it was so hard. Um, and we, we had an amazing evening right after we, we won the world championships with our team and, and our family. And um, we went out for pizza and beer, which is like tradition no matter what. And it was really special. But then the next day, you know, we had a chat with our coach and he was like, look, I know what we did was historic and, and, you know, this was our big goal for the season. And this is one of our goals as, as an athlete to, to be able to do, but we have other things on our bucket list that we need to kind of check off. And, um, we have five more tournaments ahead of us that we have to focus on. And that was really daunting to think about because we started the six weeks on the road with a huge bang and to kind of forget about that was really difficult. So it was, it was hard for us. I'm not going to lie. The following week in Stad. I mean, we finished fifth, which is respectable, but it's certainly not what 
we were hoping for, what we wanted to accomplish, and especially coming off of a win like the World Championships, um, it was really disappointing. And you kind of go from this huge high of emotions and pure elation and pure joy um, to a really kind of disappointing place. And, and um, it was kind of hard to kind of comprehend all the emotions that were going on. Um, we ended up that, that six week stint, we ended up coming off with three gold medals and two, two fifth places. And, um, so overall pretty successful run, but it was a crazy wave of emotions and roller coasters. But I think what really made it special was to be able to share it with the Canadian community. And when we went to that tournament in Edmonton, a couple of weeks after the world championships, we really kind of felt the impact and the love. Um, and I think it made us really happy and fulfilled to see the sport grow. And that's ultimately what we want to do is just kind of inspire the next generation and, and inspire, you know, young girls, especially to take up this sport. And when we would get some messages from parents or from young girls saying that we inspired them to start playing, that's what really kind of reminded me why we do this. And, um, yeah, I think it was it was a pretty special moment. I'll never forget it. Yeah, it can be tough in, in our sport because it is so tournament-based where, yeah, you guys win Worlds and you got to go on to the next one where in team sports it feels like they get an off-season to be appreciated and celebrate and take a break. So with you being a high-level athlete in our sport, how do you keep trying to climb more, right? Because, yeah, the stuff happens right after. Uh, you have more tournaments coming where just because you won Worlds doesn't mean you get to do well at the next tournament. You always have to do more, right? And and even for an athlete like Sarah, who was the best indoor player in the world, and she's an Olympian, well, now she wants to go to another Olympics, and she wants to keep doing better, right? So how do you kind of appreciate what you've accomplished but still kind of keep pushing and trying to do more? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. Um, I think it's important to surround yourself with people that will – constantly keep you grounded and remind you and make you self-aware. Um, and I think that's something that we've really put an emphasis on is who you surround yourself with. And we've really curated our team here. Um, and that includes, you know, not just like our coach, but all of our IST members. So like our strength coach, our sports psychologist, our physiotherapist, um, our family members, our assistant coaches, everyone who's been a part of this journey, they kind of help us, stay grounded and they kind of help us reevaluate kind of recognize where we are, where we came from and where we want to go. Cause I think if you left that up to just Sarah and I, we would just be completely lost and, um, kind of not really be able to appreciate everything that we've done. And I think it took some time, honestly, to kind of look back at the, that season and, um, and feel proud. Um, I think, what does happen over time though, is that your goals do change and your standard changes a little bit. And so that comes from experience that comes from producing performances and results that, you know, instill the confidence to be able to change your goals, um, and, and kind of adapt and, and evolve as, as the same way that your game and your play does as well. Um, but it's been, I've had just a few moments where I've kind of reflected to see how far I've come, where I came from, what I've accomplished on that path. Um, and I think it's really important that everybody does that at some point and more frequently. I don't think I do it enough because I think it makes you really appreciate where you are at this moment. And, and it makes you really appreciate who's helped you along that road. Um, I think 
you know, being a professional athlete, it can be a very selfish endeavor. And, um, you know, you have a lot of people working for your goal and I don't know if we recognize that enough and I'm going on a tangent here, but I think, (laughs) um, you need to just kind of surround yourself with those people, be grateful for them. Uh, cause they'll kind of help you remember where you came from. Well said. Thank you. Uh, we are a volleyball podcast, but I did want to spotlight uh, that you do have a life outside of volleyball and you are very well-rounded and can talk about many things, but obviously our context <laughs> is volleyball. But uh, I did want to spotlight that you've kind of made a dive into social media and you got a YouTube channel. So what have you enjoyed so far about that? Whether, you know, it's just a day in a life or you're showing us what you're cooking that day. Like what have you enjoyed so far about just showing the other side of your life? Yeah. You know what? That's been, it's been really fun. This kind of YouTube adventure. Um, I think it, what's so beautiful about the sport of beach volleyball is that the players and the athletes, the stars essentially were very accessible. And I don't know if you can say that about a lot of professional athletes where, you know, you can kind of just like shoot them a message and then more often than not, they'll reply back to you and you just kind of feel like you're a part of this family. And I think that's what I tried to accomplish with the YouTube channel as well, just kind of give an inside look as to who we are as people, what we do in relation to our sport, but also just kind of give them um, kind of a deeper look into who I am as, as a person and kind of my quirks and and my different personality traits that you might not see on the court. And, you know, a lot of feedback I've gotten is how funny Sarah's cameos are because, you know, not a lot of people get to see that side of her or me. And I think, um, it's been just really fun to kind of connect with, um, just fans of the game. And, um, it's been actually a really fun experience for me to kind of learn how to edit. And if you have any tips on how to edit videos, <laughs> please send them my way, but just kind of like get into that space and get into the social media space is fun. I think that there's a really important balance that needs to be had because I can get really carried away with, um, spending too much time on my phone and on my computer Um, but when I feel like I have a project I'm working on, it just feels a little bit more fulfilling. Um, but yeah, I think anything that can kind of take my mind off of, um, volleyball is a project that I want to take on. I think it's important to kind of have something else that you can put your energy into. Um, because I think if I just focused everything on volleyball, I don't think I would love it as much to be honest. Um, so this has been a fun passion project on the side. Nice, nice. Thank you for sharing that. So uh, one tradition we'd like to kind of close out most episodes with is just a a funny story to show that even though you're performing at the highest level, that uh, maybe some funny or unique stuff happens to volleyball players. Uh, So do you have a a funny story you could leave us with a laugh before we let you go? Yeah, I do. Um, You know what, I actually have two. And I'm going to leave this up to you to kind of pick which one you want to leave in. The first one that came, or the one that came to my head was, now I really have to kind of set the scene for this because this was a a pretty formative moment for Sarah and I in our partnership. But, um, we were playing in the Hague in Netherlands and it was a couple years ago. I think it was our first season together. And this tournament was, um, it was one that was half indoors and half outdoors. I don't know if you remember that tournament. Um, but it was a very interesting format because they had an indoor facility that they really wanted to utilize but the, the final medal matches were played outdoors. And so we had played the entire tournament indoors, um, beach volleyball, of course, but in an indoor facility. And so, um, we, we kind of go to our games. We probably would be wearing leggings. Like it wasn't like super hot out. The sun wasn't shining because we were obviously inside. Um, 
And it's a completely different game when you don't have the elements like the wind and the sun. But anyway, so we were warming up for our, we were, we made it into the final four and we were warming up for our semifinal match against Brazil. And, um, it was the, the typical game. We, you know, we had to commute about 30 minutes from our hotel to the venue. Um, and normally we will always make sure that we're matching our bottoms. Uh, for some reason this time it didn't really cross our mind. So we started warming up and then 10 minutes before the game, you know, the rest come, they say, okay, we're going to do the coin toss, you know, get your uniforms on and let's go to the court. And so here we are 10 minutes before the game. We're, we're taking off of our leggings and our, and our t-shirts and Sarah and I look at each other and we're wearing completely different bikini bottoms, <laughs> like completely different. And we're not anywhere near close to our hotel to be able to run back get our bottoms and change. We didn't have any other bottoms with us. We're panicking. We have 10 minutes. The other team is outside getting used to the core and kind of doing their serving warm up and stuff. And we're panicking. We're like, Oh my God, what the heck do we do? So we asked the ref, we're like, ref, what do we do? We don't have the same bottoms. And they were like, well, um, you kind of have to have bottoms. Otherwise <laughs> you kind of forfeit this set. Um, and potentially the game. And so we were like, can we play in leggings? And they're like, no, it's more than 15 degrees outside. You can't play in leggings. So we're running around the court. Meanwhile, we should be warming up. Now I think there are seven minutes left before the game. And so we run, uh, we're running around and the refs offer up this really great piece of advice and, and suggest that we wear the dancers bottoms, the, the cheerleaders that are like five, five and wear the skimpy, like thong bikini bottoms. They said that we should wear those bottoms to play. And, um, Sarah, who, you know, is six, five and, um, we, we just kind of look at each other like, no, that's not an option. We cannot wear the dancer's <laughs> bottoms. Are you kidding me? Anyway. So then we've got like three minutes before the first whistle blows and we're running around. We see our friends from Switzerland, Anouk and Joanna, who had just finished playing their semifinal match against, uh, I think another Brazilian team. And, uh, we asked them, we begged them if we can borrow their bikini bottoms and, um, they just keep in mind, they had just finished playing <laughs> their game. And so they graciously let us use their bikini bottoms. However, we did not just, put, we put them on over top of our other bikini bottoms just to be hygienic and sanitary, even though I still felt like I need to shower three times after that. But, um, <laughs> we ended up wearing their bikini bottoms over top of our bikini bottoms, um, and the refs allowed that it was fine. We ended up losing the game. Obviously we were in no headspace <laughs> to perform well. And then ever since that moment, Sarah and I will always kind of pull down our pants before we leave the hotel room. It's become a tradition and we will never ever go to a game without making sure we're wearing the same bottoms. I've always wondered what the rule is. That's so funny that you would have to forfeit a set if you don't have matching uniforms. I, they always threaten the rule, but I've never been clarified on what actually happens. That's so interesting. Well, I think what actually, what was going to happen in the situation is that they were going to make us go back to the hotel room and get our bottoms. And in that time, I think we would have had to forfeit that set. And if we made it back in time for the second set, then we could have, I think, continued oh, playing. Okay. But essentially, we were going to have to forfeit the whole game if we didn't find bottoms in that very moment. So thank you, Switzerland. Thank you for saving our butts. <laughs> Big assist to the Swiss girls. That's awesome. I was just thinking that story took forever to say. Um, the other one was when my dad got almost got into a fist fight with Harley. Okay, I remember this was my very first 
um, FIV tournament in Quebec. Do you remember, Josh? And um, Victoria and I had finally made the main draw. This was our very first main draw game. We were playing against Georgia at the time. And at that time, a lot of Brazilians would go to kind of other countries and get citizenship there and then um, play for that country. So it was essentially a Brazilian team, but playing for Georgia. And Harley, who was a very well-known Brazilian player, you know him, right, Josh? Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners would as well, yeah. Yeah, okay, so Harley was was married to one of the, the players that we were playing against. And he was watching her game along with his very enormous partner, um, and I remember they were all watching our game. My dad was there and um, it was kind of a big deal for, for Victoria and I to be in that game. We were just very excited to be there. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I see my dad stand up and then I see Harley stand up. And then I see Harley's massive partner who is bigger than Harley and Harley's already bigger than my dad stand up and kind of like they're facing each other about to get into this fist fight. And I am losing my mind trying to keep it cool because I'm in the middle of a game. I think it was in a third set or something. It was like a very important part of the game. And my dad is about to get his socks knocked off from <laughs> these two Brazilian players. And a, and I was just I had a hard time focusing, obviously. And then I think who was, I think it must have been, was it Josh Binstock or someone was sitting with my dad and then just felt, oh, I think it was Aaron Cadu felt obligated to kind of like stand up to kind of be my dad's backup because my dad had nobody. And so it was like Aaron could do and my dad against Harley and, Oh, I, I'm blanking on who his partner was, but it was the most hilarious scene I've ever seen in my entire life. And it was because I guess Harley must've been sideline coaching and saying some things in Portuguese to his wife, but my dad can speak Portuguese. So understood it all and was telling him to stop coaching. And then they started to get into an argument and fight. And then eventually it really escalated. And then someone had to get in between them and push them away. But it was probably the craziest thing I've ever seen. Um, that was my very first FIVB experience. Yeah, stuff. it was quite alarming because in Quebec, all the side courts were kind of just in a row there. And I remember like hearing your dad upset, and which was alarming because he's always the most calm and friendly <laughs> guy. And then, yeah, you look over, and I, I think it was Aaron. I think that's a pretty good memory by you. It was definitely it was definitely another Canadian. But, yeah, there was, there was a little uh, – Something was going down there for sure, but yeah, it was just so alarming to hear your dad yell and raise his voice like that and be so into it where, yeah, I, I forget Harley's partner as well, but that was a large, large player for sure. <laughs> he was massive. And I definitely think, I remember speaking to Eric and do about it after and he was like, uh, yeah, he was like, I was very, very nervous and not wanting to stand up, but I just felt like I had to give your dad some backup because <laughs> he was up against some big boys. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, credit to Kadu for stepping in like yeah. that. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, those are my stories. Awesome. I might have to leave both of those in. Those are both great. Okay. Well, hopefully this podcast isn't too long. Definitely want to thank you for taking the time. I know it was a bit of an effort to coordinate because uh, different time zones and all that other stuff and you're busy. I'm sometimes busy, but uh, I want to thank <laughs> you for being so friendly with the, the cooperation and finally getting to work and uh, can't wait to get this one out so our listeners can have a bit of a treat. It's been great and we'll have to get you back on if, if Dallas ever makes another appearance. I'm sure he's going to miss this one. Yeah, come on, Dallas. What are you doing? Well, thanks so much for having me, Josh, and thanks for being patient with my schedule. I really appreciate it. Awesome. So best of luck. Uh, is Mexico going to be your first one? Have you guys decided what your first event this year will be? Yeah, Mexico is the first one, which is only a few weeks away. I'm so excited. It's going to happen fast, I think, once it gets here. So. Oh, yeah. Good luck, and uh, we'll all be rooting for you. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thanks, Melissa.